0: Hello everybody and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, there is groundwater, freshwater, aquifers underneath the seafloor all around the world,
1: something I was not aware of until very recently. And I was not aware of until you told me (laughs) and said, we've got to do a show on this interesting topic. And being the nerds that we are, I was Immediately uh, agreeable to the notion.
0: Well, yeah, we came across this paper in the Reviews of Geophysics, a scientific journal, uh, and uh, it is about offshore freshened groundwater in the continental margins around the world. And apparently, this freshwater can be a valuable resource in the future. And there are, we just don't know enough about what these aquifers are really doing and
1: how they work. And so, we're going to be talking about that today. Totally. And we've got a great guest to learn more about this interesting uh, existence of fresh and groundwater.
0: Yeah, we're going to be talking today to Dr. Aaron McAuliffe from Kiel, Germany. He is at the Geomar uh, Geomar is the name of the uh, institute. He is at an independent research institute at the University of Kiel in Kiel, Germany. He is a marine geologist and is the lead author of the paper that came out in November 2020 in the Reviews of Geophysics. Uh, We'll post the paper for the real nerds out there who want to get deep into it. So we're going to be talking to Aaron uh, McAuliffe today, and I'm very
1: excited about it. As am I. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors.
0: The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA Dot com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast Newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at That's C H L O E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
1: Well, Aaron, uh, if you couldn't tell from the sound of our voice, we are very excited to have you on the show. And uh, first of all, Kiel, Germany, you're you're coming at us from across the pond and then some. Uh, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, tell us about you, where you're from, and uh, how you became a marine geologist.
2: So hello, Tyler. Hello, Peter. Thanks for having me on your show. And um, so I started in a very strange way to, to make my way into marine geology because Initially, I was uh, a normal terrestrial geologist, and actually I was studying arid to semi-arid environments. So basically deserts, I was looking at how landscapes evolve in deserts, especially in relation to salt degradation and uh, similar types of weathering. So that was sort of my career, or rather my uh, student career until I did my master's degree.
1: Can I pause you real fast here, Aaron? Yeah, sure. So, you're you're a, what drove you to terrestrial geology? I wonder.
2: Oh, initially, so that started, um, and this is sort of a funny story that I like to tell my friends. When I when I was like four or five years of age, um, uh, in Malta, which is where I'm from and where I grew up, we had uh, fruit juice that came with with a sticker, and you collected stickers in an album, and these were all uh, like beautiful photos of landscapes from around the world. And I was really fascinated by these landscapes, by... It was mostly, of course, by their beauty, by the aesthetics. But then as I grew up, I slowly realized that there's a whole science that actually explores how and why those landscapes form as they are. So I was immediately fascinated by geosciences, geology, geomorphology, and it's sort of the thing I always wanted to do from a really young age. And uh, luckily, I was able to to continue doing so until I actually became fully employed in this field.
0: You know, I got to say, we've never, Tyler, we've never had a guest from Malta. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> on on the podcast, and we've done, I don't know, 100, and I don't know how many shows, but first one. And Almost a couple hundred. And, uh, Aaron, if you wouldn't mind, tell our audience a little bit. I'm curious about Malta. What was it like? Can you tell us about the island, the size, the population, what goes on there, and what was it like to grow up in on Malta?
2: Okay. So Malta is, has an area of about 300 kilometers squared. So that's tiny. That's basically like 25 kilometers in length and 14 kilometers wide. And that's the main island. It's actually an archipelago of three main islands, which are very close to each other. And it's basically almost an extension of North Africa in terms of climate and also in terms of geology. It's um, all limestones, it's, um, covered by, um, surrounded by cliffs to low-lying shorelines to enclose like very small beaches, and uh, at the moment we have a population of almost half a million people, wow. and that puts us as one of the most densely populated countries in the world. And also, and this goes back to the story of the offshore groundwater. We are in the top ten poorest countries in the world in terms of water resources. Ah. So this was one of the sort of triggers. For this research into which i'll be you know going into detail later on
1: you know aaron and, I'm, I'm proud of yes. us for discovering that little <laughs> nugget right now yeah i mean
2: uh,
0: you can see that i mean i, I love the story of, of collecting the stickers from juice boxes when you're a Not kid totally. i mean who knows what drives you know people's career choices and that's a fabulous story uh, and then understanding the the density of the population on the island and the rareness of or the difficulty of freshwater water supplies I mean here you are you're a a, a scientist who studies marine uh, hydrogeology and
1: uh, what so, can I just ask growing yeah, up was Aaron was was water a, b- a major issue on, uh, in Malta with regard to the government I mean uh, is this kind of a? I know in Southern California, water is just like the issue. When I was growing up, I'm wondering if it was like that in Malta.
2: Well, um, it is, but I think the people in general are not very aware of that because, um, luckily, we were one of the like earliest countries to install a reverse osmosis plant. We actually have three of those, wow. and uh, um, almost half of our water actually comes from from reverse osmosis, from directly from the sea now this is really expensive um, yes. in terms of um, power use and of course the money that we have to pay for that but uh i guess there there was i'm not sure whether it's the case some government subsidy in that which made it cheaper for the people sort of to have access to water so we, there is water scarcity but we don't really feed it mostly because of this wow but it's going to be an issue in the future because the other half of the water is actually coming from groundwater resources and those are slowly, you know, being depleted because I think we're using we're using more water than is being naturally recharged. So at some point we we might encounter uh, water scarcity issues in the in the coming years if we're not careful about how we manage our water resources.
0: You know, it's it, it's an interesting driver, uh, and I think uh, understanding that in certain coastal areas and parts of the world. Uh, Water resource access is an important issue. As Tyler said, in Southern California, the the entire you know, public water infrastructure system that serves South uh, Southern California from the Colorado River is just a massive, massive investment of billions and billions of dollars to ensure that these coastal communities have the water that they need to function. Uh, true in Malta, you're saying, um, and which makes this topic of nearshore freshwater uh, sources, groundwater sources that are either in nearshore or under the sea, a particularly interesting uh, phenomenon or geophysical uh, topic to explore. Um, how did you come into the investigation of this particular topic? When did you start? Uh, did this start with your Tenure at the University of Malta, or is your work at the University of Oxford uh, and your PhD from the University of Southampton? At what point in the process did uh, subsea groundwater become a focus of your research?
2: Actually, it started being so a bit later, I would say. um, Let me try to count. It's about seven, eight years after I finished my PhD, because one of the topics that I study as a marine geologist is submarine canyons. So these are huge canyons valleys at the bottom of the ocean uh, that are bigger in size than our largest canyons such as the grand canyon for example and uh, one there's two different shapes of these canyons one is like sort of v-shaped pointed a normal valley as you would expect on shore but then there's a few of them that are what we call box canyons and these are wide they have vertical walls and they have theater shaped heads Hmm. and uh, Nobody was able to assign um, a process to explain their formation. So, some theories, um, some people suggested that potentially it would be groundwater that is seeping out of the seafloor, either from sediments or from rocks, and developing these particular morphologies. So, I wanted to start, I started actually with that premise that I wanted to understand how these canyons form. But then, as I was looking at all the potential fluids that might be involved, and particularly offshore um, fresh and groundwater, I realized that there is a huge opportunity and perhaps a, a gap in knowledge in, the field, in our field in relation to this topic. So I developed a proposal for a project which is called MARCAN, which is an e- e- ERC funded project by the EU, which is where the reviews of geophysics paper is coming from. Um, to try, first of all, to understand how we find offshore groundwater, what's where where do you find it? Why it, why you find it in certain places? And secondly, the impact that it has on seafloor geology, in particular, box canyons or submarine canyons in general.
0: So I'm I'm curious in, uh, about the box canyons. You said there are submerged river valleys, these V-shaped valleys where uh, river systems that reach the coast at lower periods of sea level were then drowned. And you can see these geomorphological features in the mm-hmm. near shore. I understand that. But this box canyon, the theory you postulated was that they were possibly formed by the interaction of the subsea with uh, with uh, groundwater. Um, can mm-hmm. you talk about, did that theory hold up? Or what is your explanation now of the formation of these sort of freely independent box canyons on the seafloor? What What is making this feature?
2: Well, I hopefully will have an answer for you in a few months time because we're working just on that in the last year of the project. So we have some numerical modeling that is going on um, to see like if um, you have groundwater seeping in certain uh, geological strata, you would form these box canyons. And it's likely to be the case, but what I wanted to mention earlier is that we're talking about groundwater, but groundwater and in, in marine geology could be anything. It could be fresh water. It could be salt water, could be could be brine, so high salinity um, water. And in the case, for example, of the United States, you have lots of these box canyons just offshore Florida. So on the Flor- Florida Scarp,man to the west of the Florida Peninsula, uh, there's a number of box canyons there that have been associated to the seepage of brines. And these are located at depths of three 2,000 meters. So it wouldn't be something that at some point was connected to a terrestrial river. This would be something completely formed underwater. And that's why um, this theory of groundwater flow is quite fascinating because it provides an additional um, process which we can use to explain these these morphologies.
1: All right. So in my mind, so first of all, I've got so many questions. Um but my first my first question is uh i i I want to just understand what you're saying you're saying that off the western coast of florida box canyons exist and that uh it is theorized that brines have been uh seeping out of the seabed in areas and then is this because they're more dense they kind of create the how do they create the canyon after they come out of the groundwater or come out of the
2: the seabed so, so this is the theory that we're trying to um, test with our numerical models. So the idea is that um, you have this um, brine seeping out. They dissolve the rocks that they touch, uh, come in touch with, either from like, pore flow, flowing through the pores, or most, most likely uh, flowing through the fractures. Uh, this creates um, like an alcove or a sort of like a gap. It erodes a, a cave at the, at the base of the escarpment. But at some point fails because there is loss of support. And this failure creates an indentation, and the process goes on. It's also a positive feedback. So once you have an indentation, you have more water flowing through, and slowly this this box canyon forms. Now we're trying to see whether, um, so this has been hypothesized. We don't really know the mechanics or the rates at which this happens to be able to justify the hypothesis. So that's what we're trying to do with our numerical models. We're testing different processes and different rates to see which one um, is more likely to form this particular uh, type of cave. Wow.
0: OK, so we're in Austin, Texas. We're in central Texas. And what is very common around here, there's a, there are large limestone deposits here. They're former seabeds, actually, in this part of mm-hmm. of the Texas, uh, the state of Texas. But the formation of caves, of course, is exactly as you described. There's uh, groundwater that seeps through the rock systems and dissolves the rocks. And there are well-known caves all around this part of uh, central Texas and great habitat. This is where we have our Mexican free-tailed bat colonies all over this part of the state. So you're saying that these... Subsea caverns essentially can be formed on this uh, under the sea floor.
1: Well, can I? And, and, then, and the there's, ca- there's I know, then there's a chemical reaction. Yeah, there's a with dissol- the rock.
0: Yeah, it's dissolving the rock. So that's badass. That's badass. So, I'm curious. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the box canyon. How big is this feature? I mean, I know there's a variety here, but what is the range, the depth, the size? How prominent are these as a feature?
2: so globally they're not super common i mean they're not as common as what we call normal uh, v-shaped uh, canyons but i'm i know of examples for example as i said uh, offshore florida there's um also the blake escarpment and the new jersey there's a few there as well mm-hmm. uh offshore mexico and the Campeche escarpment so just north of uh, mm, yeah. yucatan um uh, malta luckily that's, that's another reason why i'm uh, studying the Maltese islands because just offshore Malta we have a similar escarpment so this is like a 250 kilometer long uh, four kilometer high cliff all made up of limestones with these box canyons at the at the base and those are sort of the most um, well studied but I'm sure there are others that haven't been mapped yet and uh, that other margins that might host similar um, box canyons. Okay, let me In see terms if of I've... size. Yeah yes. go ahead please keep going. So in terms of size, they are, if I remember correctly now, between 5, 10 kilometers wide. And in terms of length, I would say no more than 50 kilometers. So they're they're quite, quite large, but not as big as the V-shaped submarine canyons.
0: And did I hear you say that the vertical uh, relief of the canyon walls, the sheer canyon, box canyon walls, could be two kilometers? Did I hear that
2: right? So that's actually the height of the escarment of the cliff, which is actually four kilometers. It's, it's double that. Okay. But, but in terms of height of the Box Canyon itself, if I remember correctly, the highest that I can remember is about 800 meters to one kilometer, something like that, which is still not bad, but not as big as the whole cliff, of course understand.
0: So have there been uh so when you're trying to I mean I, this all gets connected to the groundwater because the underlying hypothesis that we that you're exploring is the formation of these things being connected to the release of groundwater into these uh subfloor deposits I guess of yes. limestone and, and creating these cav these collapsed caverns essentially that's it's it's interesting theory so you got to understand the groundwater but I want I'm just you know I I what I love remember like in the <laughs> when you look at the ROVs in the, in the videos that they take really deep sea stuff where uh, they're really uh, photographing these features right, what is the extent of the understanding of, the, of these features um, do you know them because of sonar do you know them because of are there visuals have there been submarines and ROVs placed down there to sort of
2: look at these features what do you know about them how do you know what you know about them so the funny thing is that most of the knowledge that we have and this is just on box canyons right not no, not on around Yes. yes. um is coming from the 70s 80s and there's a colleague of mine who works at Mbari, Charlie Paul who um has been working a lot on these box canyons especially in the earlier part of his career. And if we're talking about the 80s we're going to have um a single perhaps multi beam echo sounder you know you know no yes. great data um resolutions. There was some uh, submersibles at the time, which was really um, useful. They provided very useful data. And there were some seismics. But we're talking about 30, 40 years ago, and of course the data quality nowadays is much much higher. So we have some of these box canyons that have been covered with new, higher high resolution systems, but very few of them have been explored with ROVs. And uh, this is something that I'd like to do at some point in the near future. And the problem is that especially in Europe, which is where I'm working mostly, there are only a few ROVs that go down to those depths. And uh, they are either difficult to access or expensive uh, to use. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to do so yet, but it's something that it's still in in the pipeline. I'm hoping to get it done sometime soon. You
1: mentioned that you're using uh, modeling to Mm -hmm. try to understand and kind of run some hypotheses, I imagine, on like how Mm -hmm. these things would work. Could you could you talk about how you do that and just how that works? I mean, I imagine there's just trillions of variables, (laughs) but how, (laughs) how, how do you how do you do a numeric model of a of a box canyon, you know, hypothesis?
2: So first of all, we need to get the baseline data for a case study. And in this case, actually, we're using the Florida escarpment. So we try to get all the information available uh, that we can in terms of uh, the landform, so the bathymetry, the shape of the escarpment. Then we have some uh, boreholes that have been drilled in the past that tell us what kind of rocks you find and what are their geotechnical properties in terms of strength, in terms of permeability, for example, and then we and also, actually, some fracture information that we have from the submersible images. So that gives us a good idea of what the baseline conditions are. And then we're using what we call a discrete element model, which is in 3D. So basically, um, we input all this information in our model and recreate the, S, the Florida escarpment as uh, as much as possible in, high, in the highest resolution possible and as much as, as based on the, on the data that we have. And then we, um, we can modify different parameters. So we can modify uh, the flow of the water, the velocity that it comes out, uh, where it comes out, its chemistry, and, and then it's imp- the impact that it has on the, on the various um, geological layers. So for example, if you have clay layers, you might have some, some creep or some expan- expansion, which might result in fracture widening. So as you said, there's lots of different parameters that we have to take into consideration. But the results that we're getting are—it's—it's it's really um, encouraging because some of the parameters seem to be recreating this box canyon morphology uh, very well. Um, so especially when you're considering flow through fractures and the effect it can have on on the widening, uh, like through the solution, for example, or fluid pressure. Yeah, so you- as I said, it's still a work in progress, but hopefully i'll have something more concrete to share with you in a few months time
1: well no i and we look forward to uh getting that update i just want to know it, when you're doing this modeling It's there's so many there's so many considerations
2: mm-hmm.
1: um i imagine that you are that you collaborate with other uh experts in maybe i don't know chemistry or other fields yeah. geophysics geophysic yeah hydrologists um is, is that mm-hmm. the case i mean do, do you work with do you have a team that you assemble to kind of um, solve these problems or or do you kind of are you the kind of guy that you're alone in the lab kind of just plucking away <laughs> on the keys by yourself what's your style there
2: <laughs> I, I wish I could do this kind of work all on my own but I'm not able to because it's such a, such a wide range of expertise so in the team that I was able to build through the Markham project we have um, a geotechnical engineer and also a um, numerical modeler who are helping out uh, with the tasks that I mentioned. And then I'm also working with colleagues, especially with uh, geochemists at GEOMAR to understand the impact of fluid flow on, on the geology, on, on rock degradation, for example. Whereas the geophysics, mostly it's, it's the part that I do because that's the, like, uh, the work that I'm able to do in terms of bathymetry, seismics, and also ROV image um, interpretation.
0: It, it does It sounds fun to me. Uh, You know, as a (laughs) a curious person, it sounds like a really interesting area of study. I wonder, uh, Aaron, when you're examining these features, you would think that if we had a really clear understanding of the bathymetry of the seafloor all around the world, you would see these canyons at various phases of development. In other words, there's Mm -hmm. the box canyon, which is sort of the collapsed cavern idea. But you maybe could find or have you been able to identify or find um, subs, subsea caverns, which are uh, box canyons in development. Have you been able to see these features at
2: various stages of their geologic formation? Um, yes, I would say so. Perhaps not in Florida, but closer to Malta, because um, once, you, if I remember correctly, there's about 20 or 25 of these box canyons um, at the base of the Malta escarpment. And I forgot to mention that these occur at different depths. And in the case of Malta, we also have them at a depth of 130 meters, and uh, that's actually where the sea level was uh, 20,000 years ago and 120,000 years ago. So um, it's when the sea level was lower and the coastline was actually at that point. So these are box canyons that are formed basically at the coastline, and when you have groundwater seepage and taking place in a in a dry in a dry terrestrial area because it was all exposed. Mm-hmm. And especially in this case, you can see like there's so many that you can see them at different stages of evolution and we do what we call a space for time substitution. So basically you have um, a canyon which is young and a canyon which is old and you know because it, it has developed more in terms of length, in terms of width, in terms of complexity. And if you can put them sort of in an order, you can see it's like going back in time observing snapshots of how this canyons have has actually evolved through time and we've done it in the past with submarine canyons and and it has also been done with other landscapes on shore as well
0: wow interesting so there's so there's a couple things i want to ask here i'm i'm curious about the chemistry that results in the dissolving of the rock and the formation of the canyon in terms of the relationship between the groundwater is it saline Mm -hmm. fresh briny does that change it the versus the chemistry and the composition of the deposits, the rock. Uh, so I'd like to I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. But more importantly, are you suggesting that the that box canyons like this are actually terrestrial formations that have then been flooded by sea level rise, or can they be created completely underwater?
2: No, they can also be created completely underwater. Like in the case of Malta, we have the two examples that have been formed um, completely underwater and the other ones that have been formed when they were exposed at lower sea levels and then they were submerged again. Right. So there's the two of them. And uh, one thing that I would like to mention is that, okay, we have all these box canyons underwater, but of course, it's easier to investigate them or to explore them on shore and on shore. There are lots of examples too, and they've been explored, have been explored and investigated for many years. And what we've done, because we have Malta and New Zealand as our study areas, we did go there on shore to find box canyons to see how they evolved. So we have a study that we just recently published for New Zealand, again, showing how groundwater plays a key role in the evolution of these um, landforms. And now we're working on Malta for the example of bedrock limestone canyons. And uh, we're doing all of this too, because it's funny how this All brings us back to mars now i know we should be talking about (laughs) let's go let's go to mars i'm I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm going to i'm going to mars with you why is it relevant (laughs) to mars because in mars there are these box canyons as well and in the past they've been associated to groundwater seepage and this could have implications for martian life as well whereas recently there were studies that were suggesting "Mm, perhaps this is not really the case and they could be formed by other processes, for example, floods or um, surface flow. And uh, getting this um, sort of debate, as st- or at least trying to contribute to it, contribute to it and try to solve it, would be really good because these um, controversies are, as as you can see, are found on other planets, on land and underwater. And uh, trying to understand how, once and for all, how these box canyons form would be quite useful for, the three,
0: for wow. the three types of settings. What a blast. I love it. I love, I just, I just love this stuff. Uh, I would like to know more about, so let's talk, let's, let's see if we could uh, take our audience through a little bit of the notion of how a subsea box canyon might be formed in this question of the chemical relationship between mm-hmm. the groundwater. I mean, the idea here is that they form because there is a groundwater seep under the sea. Um, can you tell us about, what is the kind of condition? What type of rock is dissolvable? And what types of groundwater chemistry can create a feature like this? Is that is is there an understanding of that, or is there multiple answers to that question? I mean, what can you tell us about that?
2: Well, at least the theories that we have at the moment, or uh, even the observations show that most of these box canyons occur in limestones or dolomites, so basically okay. sedimentary rocks. and. Uh, What's interesting, uh, especially underwater, because this happens often, is that when you have the combination of two um, fluids that have different salinities, even if one is already saturated in terms of um, the salt material and the other is not, once they mix up, they, it becomes undersaturated. So that means that when you have two fluids with different salinities, these, the solution power of that fluid, whichever it is, is increased. And so if you have fresh water seeping out into the sea or um, highly sanine water seeping out into the sea, both of them would uh, be very good at dissolving the limestone with which they come in contact. So that's the theory that we have at the moment for the formation of these box okay. canyons.
0: So hang on. OK, hang on a second. Is- OK, hang yes. on a second. I want to, <laughs> I, I, I know, I know. I'm. I just am curious about that. So you're saying that the salinity gradient difference between, say, the groundwater source subsea and mm-hmm. the ocean salinity, I guess is what, 32 parts per 1,000 or whatever it is normally. Yep. Uh, that difference, that salinity gradient Increases the erosive capacity of these fluids, and how, how? Why? You said solution power. That's the phrase that caught my attention.
2: Yeah, what if d- I d- can call yeah. it that, it's not really a technical term. Okay. <laughs> Just it well, up. How
0: does? So <laughs> well, what, let's coin it. Let's coin it. What, what is the? What? Why is the difference in in salinity between the groundwater sea, source subsea? Because these porous rocks, you know, the ocean water you would think is dissolving into the rocks from above, from the sea, right? So, so there's this mishmash going on. Help me understand. But, that.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. But actually, like most of the the solution takes place at, at the mixing zone. We call it the mixing zone, the area where you have um, mixing of different selen- fluids of different salinities. So the sea, on its own, if you know, is just in contact with the water. There is some weathering, and perhaps there's some dissolution, but it would be much higher if there's another fluid with uh, different salinity that's coming in contact with it. So that happens really where you have fractures that are um, hydraulically conductive that are allowing lots of fluid, um, whichever source it is, uh, moving into into the ocean. And uh, in the case, for example, of the Florida escarpment, The driving mechanism for this um, is what we call geothermal convection or cohout convection. And uh, remember that uh, the temperature of um, the geological rocks um, or like in the land increases with depth at, at a rate of on average of about 25 degrees per kilometer. So if we have these escarpments that are up to four kilometers high, at the base of these escarpments, the temperature is going to be almost 100 degrees. So you have 100 degrees inside the escarpment, inside the rock, right? And then you have, let's say, 5, 10, 15, or even that, degrees for the um, ocean bottom temperature. Then you have a, a, a stark temperature gradient. And that drives a sort of a, like a pump where the, uh, the water goes um, outside. Sorry, it goes inside. Um, the rock gets heated up, goes up, and then comes out at a shallower um, depth. Now, in the case of Florida, it's a little bit more complicated because we have evaporites. We have um, saline uh, layers that make the water more dense, and we get sort of the opposite effect. So it's the water is seeping out of the escarpment and into the ocean at a higher salinity than the ocean because of these uh, evaporites inside the escarpment. I hope I didn't put it uh, in too complicated terms. But I, I, that's, I think I, I get the
0: general idea. You're talking I, about. I appreciate okay. that. There's a hyper saline of a, a super saline solution exactly. here that is of a higher temperature because it's coming from the groundwater. Gives it a more yes. erosive or dissolving power. Is that is that a fair that's, summary? That's
2: right. Yes. Now this topic is a little bit far away from yeah. <laughs> what we discussed in the paper because this is what's coming out of our research. Well, this, is, this is, has been proven long time ago, but um, what we're working on at the moment is trying to understand the impact of offshore fishing groundwater and other fluids on the geomorphology and the geology of the seafloor. So okay. this is what we're going to get to after we take into consideration all that is in the review paper and applying it to various margins around the world. <laughs>
1: right so uh this this was this was good we we did had a uh we took a little deep dive there ladies and gentlemen into uh the geology the freaking temperature <laughs> this that was good and and the pump action i like that but i want to talk let's let's zoom out a little bit and talk about this uh this freshened groundwater which happens to be kind of a coastal uh, phenomena at least that's our let's start with that so uh, Aaron, would you just describe uh, what these freshened groundwater—I uh, don't deposits—is that what you call them? No, aquifers. Aquifers. Well, what are what are these things, and uh, how, why do they exist? How do they exist geologically?
2: Okay, so we define offshore freshened groundwater as basically um, water that has a salinity that is lower than seawater, that is found in pores or fractures beneath the ocean floor, and there's. Uh, five ways in which fresh water can end up at the bottom of the ocean. Like there's three of them that are associated to meteoric or groundwater or groundwater that is fed by rainfall. And these are, the, the, uh, the processes are active recharge. So basically you have an aquifer on shore that continues all the way offshore. And for some reason, it doesn't seep out because you have a clay layer at the top of the ocean, for example, of the seafloor. So that's one way in which it can form. The other one, which is the most um, common, at least from the recorded um, groundwater resources that we have, is recharge during lower sea levels. So when when the sea level is, let's say, 100 meters below at present, you have a wider expanse of the seafloor, which is exposed. You have all the shelf, which is exposed. And then you also have um, higher Mm -hmm. hydraulic gradients, which push uh, the the freshwater further out into the shelf. And the third process is um, subglacial. So you can have melting at the bottom of ice sheets, and uh, the position of meltwater is another way in which meteoric groundwater can form. So those are the main three. And then there's another two, which are non-meteoric groundwater processes. And these are diagenesis. So for example, when you have transformation of different types of clays, when sediment is transforming into rock, you might have expulsion of fresh water, and it's the same with gas hydrate dissociation. So gas hydrates are um, solidified um, ice with with methane um, inside, and when that decomposes, it also releases a good amount of low sanity fresh water. So that's the five ways in which fresh water can form at the bottom of the ocean. Okay, and if
1: we were to make a pie chart of those five ways, (laughs) and I realize that we haven't mapped the whole we don't know, but like as of right now, what who's got the biggest slice of pie? Is it so? The biggest slice <laughs> would be
2: um, recharge during lower sea
1: levels. Oh, okay. So it's so that's the second one. So, you know, and yeah. that it turns out that that sea level thing is very important. I wrote it down in my notepad. That yes. uh, it, you know, and and it, it, I I don't I say that that's kind of obvious, but I I say this because uh, it every time we talk to a geologist uh, uh, about the sea, <laughs> the seabed, uh, we're always talking about how the the sea level is geologically from the perspective of a geologist, ladies and gentlemen, this is not sea level rise in the climate change discussion. This is geologic time. The sea levels have changed and those have, as it has ri- risen and fo- risen, mm-hmm. as it has rised, <laughs> as yeah, really. it has gone up and down, it has, uh, produce geologic features and this is one of them and that would be the largest slice of pie that we know about okay what what, who gets the second biggest slice
2: and the second one would be um if i remember correctly diagenesis so uh, transformation of different minerals from one type to another especially at depth um either because you have a overburden so you have lots of sediments on top that are pushing the water out and transforming the minerals or perhaps you have tectonic pressures for example at a subduction zone Okay. So that would be the second.
1: Number thing. two is diagenesis, which would which surprises me. Now, Peter, I want to play a game. I want Peter to, <laughs> guess, the to fifth, guess the the, the <laughs> smallest slice of pie.
0: I, I, oh, I'm going to <laughs> guess the smallest slice of pie. and I'm going to go with number five, which is the formation of hydrates. I think it was hydrates, the the presence of methane, which is common in the Gulf of Mexico. Actually, is that the is that the least common method? I food? think you're right. Yes
1: okay <laughs> and that means we that three and four star. three and four would be
2: so three and f- the other ones would be subglacial uh recharge and active research, recharge, recharge okay.
1: and active recharge. so there is a little <laughs> a picture of of how this is distributed all right so
0: in the paper and i have to say then in, in the reviews of geophysics is the journal offshore freshened groundwater in continental margins is the title of this paper uh uh Dr. Aaron McAuliffe is the lead author of this paper, but there are probably 20 uh, authors right. on this yes. paper. <laughs> it's an extraordinary bit of work and a very detailed introduction to this topic. Uh, the suggestion in the paper, and I have to say I did not study it all. It's a very dense paper, but the, there is a thought here that these nearshore subsea aquifers or watered freshwater deposits could be economically significant in certain regions. So this is going back to that discussion title where we were talking about the access to freshwater in Malta or Southern California. Uh, in both places, there's osmosis, reverse osmosis systems, very expensive way to produce fresh uh, freshwater. Um, is that your thought here? And the reason, what, I guess I'm getting to, why is it important that we understand these Offshore freshened groundwater resources. Why is that important to you as a scientist, or to us as a
2: society? I think there's a both there's both a scientific and applied value to the research. If we start with the applied value, so what do people? Why why should people care in general about this? Yeah, and, and the first reason would actually be they're potentially used as a uh, freshwater resource, and I'll explain a bit more about that in a second. But They might also play a role in geohazards because I've been talking about box canyons, but there's there's canyons, there's landslides that could be influenced by freshwater uh, flow. Uh, So the more we understand about uh, offshore fishing groundwater, the more we can better understand, potentially assess and predict offshore geohazards. And there's also uh, resource exploration because uh, these fluid flows is... play an important role in oil and gas uh, exploration, in in ores, and even in terms of carbon sequestration. Uh, Once you're planning something like that, you have to take them into consideration. Now, from a scientific point of view, of course, there's the the geological part, which we've covered earlier. But, um, you know, this fluctuation of sea levels going up and down is flushing out lots of chemicals from the shelf. So, If we understand better how offshore groundwater is deposited, we can better understand the biogeochemical fluxes on shelves globally. And so there are some cycles that we still are not able to understand. And a fascinating aspect of these um, offshore deposits could be biology. Because they might play a role uh, in benthic ecology if they are seeping out at the seafloor. But if they're not, there are lots of different biota in the subseafloor. Uh, especially in terms of microbiology, that, that, that might be entirely influenced and controlled by offshore groundwater. And that's a field of research that we know very, very little about. Wow.
0: You know, I, I, when you're talking about the connection between the geology and the biological resources and the connection, I, that was one of the, the areas of interest to me. I'm in the middle of reading right now, uh, which I'm really enjoying, I have to say, is the uh, Darwin's Journal of the Voyage of the Beagle in 1835 mm-hmm. to 1840ish it's five six year you know and i was i've always been reluctant to read this book because i find the writing style of mid 19th century scientists a little tedious but i got to say i'm really enjoying this this book that, that darwin wrote when he was in his mid 20s uh, he, he this book is written a little bit after he gets back the reason i'm bringing that up is i'm impressed in in this book how deeply connected his observations are between the geology of areas that he's visiting and the biological components he's discovering in every single chapter as he gets to a new area tier del fuego or he's, he's basically now in south america right now yeah. uh, he's talking about the escarpments and the and and the geologic formations and and i was impressed at how much he knew about that first of all and right. the implications biologically so uh, thanks for bringing that up. I'm curious in the research community that you are in, uh, the geologists, the marine geologist and the, bio- the and, and the biologists that you know and work with, what is the understanding of these sub these freshened groundwater resources, subsea freshwater aquifers essentially and I don't want to say aquifers is not the right word, but deposits and their biological importance, are they biologically important? What are we starting to figure out about that?
2: Actually, I, I would say that we know almost nothing because to be able to answer those questions, you need to drill inside into these groundwater bodies. And uh, as I mentioned in the paper, most of the knowledge that we have on offshore groundwater does come from drilling campaigns, but these are either from the oil industry. So they weren't equipped or they weren't even interested to look at the microbiological component of offshore groundwater, or perhaps other scientific uh, drilling campaigns, the objectives of which were completely different. So they weren't sampling for microbiology, for example. So in reality, we don't have any of the offshore groundwater that that we document in the paper that have been sampled for microbiology. And uh, it's something that we've been... Trying to get done, I mean, there, there are colleagues from, from the U.S., such as Mark Person and Brendan Dugan, who proposed to do that offshore Martha's Vineyard in the Northeast Atlantic. Uh, sorry, Northwest Atlantic. Uh, but this was a while ago, and unfortunately hasn't happened yet. So we're trying to do something similar offshore New Zealand. So in, it was last year we published a paper whereby we map in 3D an offshore groundwater system uh, near the Canterbury Margin, which is in the South Island of New Zealand. And we've constrained that in pretty good detail, and I think we're ready to go there with, um, with a scientific drilling campaign. So we did put a proposal to hopefully do that in the coming years. So, And if that, that happens, we have a particular component which is completely devoted to microbiology.
1: You know, it's such an emerging science, and discovery is on the horizon. It's really exciting, Aaron. And, you know, one of the things that... that there are a couple things I'd like to, to run by you here uh, as we close out, but um, I'm I'm curious how you collaborate. I, I asked earlier when you're doing this modeling, but um, clearly when you're dealing with uh, biology and the the applied uh, benefits, the broader impacts of this scientific research, and just we're just learning about this this part of our planet. I'm just you know I'm I'm curious to know. Uh, how you uh, de-silo <laughs> and um, uh, find find interesting pieces of knowledge and discoveries from outside of your um, your focus area, and because it's clear that that this research c- touches so many other areas of expertise, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm just curious how you how you uh, keep stay aware of the broader horizon uh, of of where we are in our understanding of the space and and how you're contributing to that understanding
2: so as you rightly said um offshore groundwater is at the nexus of various different disciplines and so there's i I mentioned a few there's biology chemistry there's geology potentially there's even archaeology and paleontology or um, past environmental change so there's lots of different disciplines that can benefit from this and the interesting aspect of this research is that, as as we g- go more forward in our um, understanding of these systems, you need so many different um, experts to help you out. So uh, earlier I was mentioning the numerical modellers, which play a fundamental role, but there's also the geophysicists and different kind of geophysicists because we need seismic reflection profiling. We need especially electromagnetics to be able to map offshore groundwater in the seafloor and you also need the geochemists because once you get a sample either from a seeping um, aquifer or potentially from the offshore groundwater body itself you can get lots of information of of when it was formed how it was emplaced um etc so it's like to do really good offshore groundwater research you need all these different expertise and to be able to do so for example in in my project in marcan um, we have colleagues, of course, from the University of Malta, but also from Germany. We have from the U.S., especially for the modeling aspect, and for New Zealand to be able to access the local infrastructure, for example. Uh, but we're tra- targeting other sites. We'd like to work in Mexico. We'd like to work in South Africa. And uh, it's always the same. Um, of course, there's a local knowledge, which is very important, but also these, this wide range of fields. So conferences, or at least you know, getting in touch with the authors that are writing about offshore groundwater at present is really crucial. And of course, because of the pandemic in the past year, it has been quite difficult to be able to make new connections or or at least maintain the ones that we already have. But luckily with, thanks to the internet and um, virtual communication that we have, the conferences, uh, we still managed to be able to work out some new interesting proposals. So hopefully in the coming years, uh, we'll be able to address some of the research questions that I mentioned in the past, and there's many, many more um, in various parts of the world. Wow
0: what is the What is the What is the number one conference for where this kind of discussion uh, would occur? And and there's a lots of scientific and marine related and coastal conferences. What is the big conference for your community?
2: Well, I think it's still such a new topic um, that there's no conference that specifically addresses this Uh, so there's like the big conferences such as the egu annual meeting which happens in in vienna so that's the european geoscience union and then you have the american geophysical union which happens most in san francisco but it's changing sites as well and uh, we've tried to um, put together or at least convene sessions that focus specifically on this topic but I think it's maybe either the community is still too small um, that work, that works on this topic, or you know there haven't been so many studies that have been done um, on this particular topic. So what we're trying to do at the moment, we've recently applied for uh, for some funding from the European Union that allows us to develop an, a network, not just of scientists, but all types of stakeholders, like from the industry, um, water managers, even. Um, local councils to represent different coastal towns to be able to bring together um, all these different expertise um, in a conference style environment to uh, finally address the question which is perhaps the most important one related to offshore groundwater whether it can be used as a water resource because of course the first thing that comes to mind when you discover offshore groundwater at the bottom of the ocean is look there's a new resource especially for coastal cities or countries that are uh, that are suffering from water scarcity. But unfortunately, it's not that easy and simple to just uh, apply that thinking because we still have lots of knowledge gaps in, st- in terms of the technological feasibility of how to do that, the economic feasibility, the environmental impacts, and also the legal implications. For example, if an offshore groundwater straddles more than one boundary, um, what do you do? Which country has control? How do you manage the resource? So there's all these different questions that we need to address. So hopefully if we get this um, proposal funded, we'll be able to bring this community all in one place and hopefully make it grow uh, by attracting new students and postdocs. Wow. That's
0: the best thing I've heard. And uh, here's why I love what you just said. Number one, it is a very cutting edge scientific research area. As you said, it hasn't even really risen to the point of having its own conference, let alone dedicated sessions at the American Geologic, what is it, Geological Union Geophysical Union. <laughs> Geophysical Union conferences or the European International Conferences. It's so new. Uh, what is really encouraging for me to hear from you as a research scientist, a basic research scientist at a cutting edge. Uh, discipline is your interest in the community implications of the research and starting from the very beginning trying to develop an approach to educate people about what you're learning to collaborate with other scientists and to bring in the stakeholders and community people who may well take an interest in this new research that is a refreshing and positive uh, thing for science, the scientific community to do,
1: in my opinion, C- compare that to the seabed mining uh, uh, boom that we're kind of tracking as well, mm-hmm. where to the best of my knowledge. Now, I know that there is a an international governing body yeah. uh, that exists. But I, to to my it's knowledge, there isn't. It's pretty secretive, very secretive. and it, it seems like that's the way they want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now look at I, I have a I have a final question for you, Aaron. Uh, and by the way, this has been excellent. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I have too. Yeah, thank I, you. Really <laughs> learned a lot. I appreciate it very much. Um, so uh, I I really respect uh, people of, of a discipline and how how they approach problems and and think about things. And uh, you are a marine geologist uh you know but you you obviously you think in geologic time and you um you i I just i'm wondering if you could share kind of a geologist's mindset to thinking about things uh broadly like has being a geologist changed the way you approach problems um what is it about i'm curious i'm I'm opening this up to you How, how What is the geologist mindset for you? And and, uh, what would you like our audience to know about how you approach problems that maybe we should take away with us?
2: Oh, um, maybe is the fact, and this is I think is a privilege for a geologist, first of all, that we're working outdoors and that's like the best part. But um, I think we're looking at phenomena from the finest spatial to temporal scale to the largest. So we're looking at almost how the universe formed down to what, how a grain of sand erodes in a matter of seconds. And I think that large perspective, I think it's really useful, um, of course, to address different geological problems. But even life in general, it's, you know, like looking at things from various perspectives, I think it's it's a good way to approach problems. And I think that's the biggest benefit I've had, you know, from practicing geology to my own personal life.
0: Interesting and let me ask you as it from that perspective and I, I, you know I've always thought about the geologist of course the long-term eon level analysis But I hadn't thought of it in terms of the seconds of a it. Yeah, it's standing. totally it's, it's you it can is. slide it's the, both directions the, the very entire cool. ge- yeah, but are you an optimist when you look at what's happening and this is really a climate change question but when you look at the environmental challenges around the planet Um, Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic about the human capacity to respond to this effectively? How does it look to you from your position as a Uh, a child? Unfortunately,
2: I'm not. (laughs) I wish I were, but um, I think we we might start doing something concrete when it's too late. That's the impression I have. I hope I'm completely wrong, especially uh, for the future generations and for my son who is just five months old, but um, the way that I've... Seen um, human, or I've read about humans behaving in the past, or the way, the way I see this problem being approached at the moment, I think it's going to be something like that. But as I said, I, I hope I'm completely wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, I, it, <laughs> it, your skepticism is not unfounded. I think uh, if you look at, uh, as you said, the history of our capacity to respond to threats, uh, we tend to wait until the crisis is completely unavoidable. And uh, yes. The problem with climate change is that the uh, the atmospheric composition cannot be quickly changed, and you can reach a certain point where the deal is done, and when you suddenly discover that there's something important you need to do differently, uh, the die has essentially been cast. And uh, I'm 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 maybe as equally skeptical. Uh, mm-hmm. It's hard to look around the world and see an example of uh, the human community responding effectively to a problem of this scale, well, but,
1: but let, maybe we're going to be surprised. I, I remain an optimist because <laughs> we have people like Aaron and we're yeah. learning more about the planet all the time and the more we learn it seems the more we learn how interconnected every system is. This is the first time I learned about this freshened groundwater at the five goddamn ways i mean come on <laughs> this is so cool yeah, and freshwater sources on yeah, the seafloor right now it's-, it's you know when i was a child learning about how the world worked this isn't how the, the way i was taught it, everything was was walled off in you know this is a river and this is an ocean and, and like mm-hmm. and the more we learn about the interconnectivity of the systems on our planet um the more hope i get because okay. that is, i think is in that is the I key to that, our, our survival i do appreciate that <laughs> aaron do you have thank you
0: for spending time with us in uh, uh from kiel germany uh uh can you share with us final closing thoughts from your standpoint
2: oh so th- thank you for having me as i said earlier and uh I think if people are interested in this, of course, they can get in touch with me and I can provide additional information. But I think we're going to see some interesting steps forwards in this field of research um, from both the applied and the scientific point of view. So I think it's worth keeping an eye on on the developments, and uh, I think people might be surprised.
0: (laughs) Well, for those uh, folks who uh, are interested, how can they follow your work or get in touch with
2: you for more information? So for the project, we have a website which is www.marcan.eu and that's the project website where we post all the updates and the outputs that we have. And if people would like to get in touch with me, my email is um, geomar.de. and it's also on the paper, um, you can find the email address on the paper as well. And we,
0: we will post the uh, the the link to the okay. to, to the research paper uh, when we post the show, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It is Dr. Aaron Michalif, uh from Gomar, the Research Institute in Kiel, Germany, uh, the lead author of the paper in the review of Geophysics on offshore freshened groundwater in continental margins. A really interesting and emerging. Area of scientific investigation. Uh, Dr. McAliffe, thank you so much for taking time to explain this uh, interesting uh, topic to our listeners around the world. We really appreciate your time.
2: Thanks to you. The